Welcome to Foresight Friday Roundup, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Berta, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Friday, June 17th. Sunday is Father's Day. It's not too late to buy that special someone, a new lawn sprinkler, hint, hint. Duct tape is great, but it can't fix everything. And you know what else can't fix everything? The federal government, or can it? That's what we're going to talk about on today's show, courtesy of a new report from the Pew Research Center on how Americans view the federal government, and a new study in the British Medical Journal on the link between how people vote and mortality rates. Today's political pundits are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning, Dave? Well, I'm getting excited about heading off to my writer's conference at Colgate University on Sunday. Uh, I keep calling it camp for some reason, writer's camp, (laughs) even though we're not going to be sleeping in tents, which is a good thing, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, sounds interesting. Have a great time. Julie, how are you? Well, I spent the weekend at Disney World, and I've spent a couple days this week now at the world's largest volleyball tournament. And I will tell you, (laughs) we've got some food issues going on in this country when you spend a little time here in Orlando. That's all I'll say. Mm -hmm. Okay. Been interesting. Food safety, food quality, food prices. Food consumption. Too much ice cream. Too much ice cream. Oh, okay. Okay, I got you. Now, before we talk about politics and public health, let's talk about Lyme disease. Now, there's an abrupt segue for you. I got bit by an infected deer tick about three weeks ago on a fishing trip. Now, I have Lyme disease, and I started taking antibiotics for it this week. So I'm curious if you've had it and can tell me what to expect. Dave, any Lyme disease in your past or any other type of acquired infection from being out in nature? Well, I'm not sure this is nature, but I went to a fancy wedding in the 90s for two investment bankers. I mean, the wedding ceremony took 30 seconds, and then we went to the tents. It felt more like a closing than a wedding, but there were bees flying all around, and I had a bee enter my pants leg and then crawl up my leg. (laughs) I kept wondering what to do about it. And as it got, you know, beyond my knee and up to my thigh, I finally just, you know, crushed it and got a major sting. And I found myself wondering if I was allergic to bee stings or not and started planning about, you know, medical evacuation if necessary. But it turned out I wasn't. So I think that's as close as I've come. Did you invent any new dances because of that? (laughs) Yeah, it hurt. Uh, yeah, so I did. It was the beast thing. It did not catch on. That's great. Julie, how about you? Any strange bumps or bites or rashes in your past after a hike in the woods or, or a day at the beach? Oh, I can get a heat rash after a day on the beach, like nobody's business. So that's not a problem. But I've never had the pleasure of Lyme's disease, Dave. So hope it goes well for you. Okay, thanks. I'll I'll keep you posted. On the plus side, it's not monkeypox, knock on wood. Well, a lot of people would wish a pox on the federal government if this new survey from Pew is accurate. Pew surveyed a representative sample of about 5,000 adults in April and May. And here are some of the interesting uh, findings related to healthcare. 
82% said the government should play a major role in ensuring safe food and medicine, but only 67% said it's doing a good job at it. 73% said the government should play a major role in effectively handling threats to public health, but only 49% said it's doing a good job at it. And 69% said the government should play a major role in ensuring access to health care, but only 46% said it's doing a good job at it. Dave, what's your take on the gap between wanting the government to help and then complaining it's not doing enough? Were there any other results that caught your eye? And what do the findings say about opportunities for marketplace healthcare reforms? I focused in on the absolute trust numbers. So the percentage of Americans who trust the government to do what's right just about always, or at least most of the time, is a dismal 20%. Believe it or not, that percentage is actually up from 15% in 2011 when the country was still experiencing the sting, not of the bee, but of the, the Great Recession. It's at about the same level as it was in the early 1990s during the first George Bush's term uh, when we were also in recession, and that probably cost him re-election. So there's clearly a link between the economy and public trust in government. Trust goes down in hard times, which does not augur well for the immediate future. So that's point number one. Point number two on trust is that these numbers are remarkably fluid. So trust in government at the end of the Clinton years was in the mid 50% range. I think it got to 54%. That was after a prolonged economic upswing, so times were good, and a fairly high level of bipartisan cooperation on many issues ranging from taxes to immigration to trade. And despite a high level of partisan rancor. You may remember, for example, that the Republican Congress impeached Bill Clinton in 1998. Point three is that despite the ups and downs in public trust for government, the absolute percentage has been consistently declining since 1964 when it peaked at 77%. I've mentioned the book Upswing by Robert Putnam a few times on our show, and he chronicles the 60-plus year decline in her income equality, cultural overlap, political bipartisanship, and individual connectedness to greater society. So that long-term tide of declining trust in government is consistent with these longer-term trends in decline in income inequality and so on. This has been going on a long time. And that's point number four. Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball, has an intriguing podcast that I listen to called Off the Rails, which examines increasing levels of distrust for society's referees and experts, even as they have become demonstrably better at what they do. I think Lewis is on to something here. Here's an example from our own home. Uh, we parted ways earlier this year with our cleaning lady of almost 30 years we considered an extended member of our family uh, because of her refusal to get a COVID booster shot. She said she needed to do her own research and ultimately decided against getting the booster. The last time we saw her, which is very sad, was when she came and dropped off her set of keys for the house. So over 400,000 Americans have died of COVID since vaccines became available. Almost all would still be alive today if they had heated experts' advice, but increasingly people aren't doing that. 
So this epidemic of distrust among Americans is literally killing people. Rekindling trust, not only in government, but in broader society is job one for all of us. If we're ever going to make progress against the giant challenges, we confront everything ranging from racial and gender equality to climate change to healthcare reform. And this will be my final point, and I may be Pollyannish here, but all Americans need and want access to affordable and accessible healthcare services that don't break the bank, marrying the liberal goal of universal coverage with the conservative goal of prudent fiscal management is the way to achieve transformational healthcare reform and potentially, I believe, a way to reverse this decades-long decline in government trust generally among the American people. And that's what I'm thinking about as I head off to the Writers' Conference I mentioned at the top of the show. I'm going to be working on book number three, Healthcare Over the Rainbow, A Blueprint for Industry Transformation. So I'm heading off on an optimistic note. Good for you. Very hopeful. Thanks, Dave. Julie, any comments or questions for Dave? Yeah, Dave, I have a question that's a little bit I know, left of where you just were, but what you just said about trust is so fantastic. I was intrigued to see the big difference between the 82% of respondents who believe that the Fed should ensure safe food and medicine and the 69% who believe that the Fed should ensure access to health care. Do you think respondents connect the dots between those two things? No, not at all. And I do wonder about the 18% who don't believe the government should protect our food and medicine. But to your specific question about that 13% gap between those who support ensuring food and medicine safety, but don't support healthcare access. Part of the reason I believe this is selfishness. All Americans eat food and most take medicines. We all want them to be safe for consumption. Most Americans have access to reasonably good health insurance, or so they believe through their employers or the government. And some Americans, and I think they're in that 13%, blame individuals without health insurance for their failure to arrange it. This last point, I think, highlights the main reason for the gap. There's been a hardening of attitudes, particularly among Republicans, regarding government's role in helping people out of poverty. It was the only governmental role of the 12 surveyed by you, where at least 60 plus percent of respondents didn't believe the government should play a major role. 7%, which was a record, said the government should play no role in helping people out of poverty. And helping people out of poverty was one of four areas where a minority of Republicans said government should play a role. So we've got a hardening of attitudes occurring at a period of time where we've got the greatest economic inequality since the Gilded Age, you know, back to the late 1800s, early 1900s. You know, the American dream is predicated on the belief that if you work hard, play by the rules, and do the right things, your kids will have a better life than you yourself will. And that's simply not true anymore for large swaths of American society. And the hardening of attitudes, I think, is reflected in this sort of lack of confidence in our government and our society more broadly to help people consistently. Yeah, well, when you have people like Jim Jordan saying yesterday, real Americans don't care about the January 6th committee, it speaks to your point about hardening attitudes. Thanks, Dave. Now let's talk about this new study in the BMJ, 
that's what the cool kids call it, researchers looked at age-adjusted mortality rates at the county level in the U.S. from 2000 to 2019. Then they compared those death rates with how those counties voted in the five presidential elections held during the study period, Republican or Democratic. The death rate in Republican counties dropped by 11% over the study period from 867 per 100,000 residents to 771.1 per 100,000 residents. By comparison, the death rate in Democratic counties dropped twice as fast, 22% from 850.3 per 100,000 to 664 per 100,000. So not only were death rates lower to start with in Democratic counties, it dropped faster in Democratic counties. The researchers said the biggest contributors to the widening gap in death rates were the prevalence of heart disease, cancer, chronic respiratory diseases, unintentional injuries, and suicide. Julie, what's your take on the study? Is there something more here than a fun, cheeky political statement? And what can the market do to level the population health playing field more than the government, which gets us back to our first topic of the day? Well, I'm not going to lie. The sensationalism around this headline is awesome. <laughs> I had a lot of fun with it, and it made me want to dig in even deeper to things beyond healthcare around education and you know other kind of fundamental differences. But it is the details embedded in what I saw as the urban-rural issues here and some of the race-based issues that paint a pretty interesting picture, honestly. Rural Republican counties experienced the highest mortality rates out of all groups, and they saw the smallest improvement in death rates over time. So I suspect that the rural location and just how migration and population has happened in general is playing a pretty big role here, whether Republican or Democrat, but the percent of Republicans living in rural places is on the rise. And Politico published a pretty interesting piece in March of this year, and I liked the way they put this. It looked at the life of the endangered group of Americans, rural Democrats. And Politico is actually really looking at what happens when you're a Democrat in a rural setting politically, but I think it has a lot to do with what's happening here. Then we get to race. It's not a surprise that Black Americans still see higher mortality rates in both Democratic and Republican counties compared to white and Hispanic Americans. And we've talked about this on the show before, but we're seeing improvements since the early 2000s, so that's good. The interesting part highlighted by this study was this. Black and Hispanic residents experienced pretty similar improvements in mortality rates in both Democratic and Republican counties, but white residents saw something quite different. In Democratic counties, white residents saw 15% lower mortality rates than their white counterparts in Republican counties in 2019 compared to a 3% gap in 2001. So that's 15% effectively in the latest data compared to 3% in 2001. That's significant. I think we're seeing a lot happening in the white population in the study. Interesting stuff. Thanks, Julie. Great breakdown. Dave, any comments or questions for Julie? Yeah, Julie, I think you're on to it. Kind of rural, white, poor who are feeling disenfranchised, even as they're feeling beleaguered aren't looking to the government to help them out, and the government's actually trying in, in many respects. So let's dig into this a little bit more, because I think there's a just a numbers aspect to this that's pretty interesting from a statistical perspective. 
So Democratic counties tend to be much larger and more urban. Republican counties tend to be much smaller and more rural. Plus, as we see in every presidential election vote count, there are many more red than blue counties. So here's my question, Julie. How much of this deepening mortality gap as it's presented here among Democratic and Republican counties is simply a function of population distribution and numbers of counties, particularly when factoring in the point you made that Black Americans have the highest mortality rates of all and they disproportionately live in urban counties? Yeah, I think that political article that I referenced kind of said it all in what you're suggesting here, Dave, which is Democrats are largely moving out of rural counties. And just by the sheer numbers, even of how we're trying to define voting districts, right? The headline is sensational, but if you really look into the numbers, I think it paints a different picture. And I want to get to one point you just talked about, which is largely white, poor Republicans not wanting federal assistance necessarily. And what's happening in the market as we see private market coming in to those areas and trying to fix rural health. We have Jennifer Schneider's company, Homeward, that's a virtual health company focused solely on, or I should say initially on rural health. Brad Smith's company, Main Street Health, very similar. And I don't know their politics, but I do know that they are enlightened about the healthcare issues in America and have looked at rural health as a real problem. So where the federal government is not able to get through to this population, we now see private market trying to do so. And they're going to have to take some pretty interesting tactics to appeal to a population that may not be as savvy or interested in kind of new ways of thinking about accessing health. So it'll be interesting. That's really interesting point, Julie. I'd throw Farzad Mashtabai's Adelaide into that group as well. Most of their clients are in rural areas and they're a strong force for trying to improve rural health care as well. Really, really interesting. Yeah, let's hope the market can work its magic in those areas. That's great. But it is hard to help people who don't want to be helped or who don't want your help. No different from people who don't know the truth and don't want to know the truth, like global warming. Wait until everybody starts getting tick bites and Lyme disease. Then things will change. You'll see. Or bees (laughs) in your pants. (laughs) Thanks, Dave. And thank you, Julie. Uh, Now let's briefly talk about other news that happened this past week. Julie, what else happened this week that caught your attention? Well, I was, you know, particularly pleased to see a big brand thrown behind distributing clinical trials. Walgreens has announced that it's set to launch clinical trials with drug and biotech manufacturers. And this is relevant for a few reasons. First, by tapping its pharmacies and clinics, it's going to have a sizable impact on the diversity of clinical trials, which is a huge issue. It also just creates broader accessibility for trials, which to this point has really been largely controlled through traditional medical channels like physicians and hospitals. So I think while it's a movement, it's not like, oh, well, this is new. It's a great step that Walgreens is taking to help democratize trials, and I'm excited to see it. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Julie. Dave, what else should we be talking about this week? Well, I'm going to be like Ernie Banks and give you two. The first is Oracle closed its acquisition of Cerner. Actually, it wasn't this week. It was a week ago. But that's a big event. And where the combination of these companies go in pushing us toward a more unified digital platform in healthcare is going to be pretty interesting to watch. And then the second one comes from an article that our friend 
Melanie Evans wrote in the journal about John Arnold, the billionaire, starting to fund lawsuits against hospital monopolies. He's got three of them going, one against HCA in North Carolina, one against Advocate Aurora in Wisconsin, and one against Hartford Health in Connecticut. And I'm cheering him on. I mean, it's no secret that hospitals have pricing monopolies in some markets and are able to set prices well above reasonable levels. So here are the courts potentially becoming yet another force for pro-market reform that correlates hospital prices with market rates in direct ways. Going back to our first topic, I think the federal government has largely failed in healthcare antitrust enforcement. So let's see if the private sector can help consumers. Thanks, Dave. And thank you, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And if you follow our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite streaming service, you'll get notified each time a new episode is available. Don't forget to tell a friend about Foresight Friday Roundup. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.